When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 39 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, but they're better known by all of us as DCU. And not only is DCU a great place to do your banking at, but they're also a great place to work. And they're hiring right now for full and part-time positions. And I know it might seem like a really strange and unique time to try and visualize yourself at a new job. But at DCU, they're here to help you make that change, along with offering a benefits package that includes a ton, three weeks vacation, a competitive salary, a generous bonus program, 401k plan with 100% company match up to 7%, tuition reimbursement, a student loan payment assistance program, and so much more. So if that sounds good, you can learn more about DCU and career opportunities by visiting dcu.org careers. DCU is proud to be an equal employment opportunity and affirmative action employer. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by MistressCarrie.com, which is where you can find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, including the weekly numbered episodes like this one. But you can also get every situation report, which is all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes every weekday. Plus every episode of Cocktails in the War Room, which is coming up to its year anniversary, by the way. There's also the events calendar filled with online streaming concerts, the galleries where I'm adding more and more pictures all the time, my blog, and the official Mistress Carrie online store. And if you're looking for the links for all of my social pages, my Cameo account, or Patreon to get a Mistress Carrie backstage pass, the only thing you need to remember is mistresscarrie.com. Okay, when I launched the Mistress Carrie podcast last year, I launched it with an intro and a theme song. And that theme song is called War Drums. And it was a gift by the guest on this week's podcast, Sully Erna from Godsmack. He has by far been the most requested guest on the podcast because during every episode of the podcast, the sit rep, the after action reports, and cocktails in the war room, you hear my theme song. People have been asking over and over, when is Sully coming on? When is Sully coming on? Well, Sully and I have been playing phone tag for months. He's not exactly the easiest guy to nail down. 
And as a matter of fact, the only time I can really get his full attention is when he's driving. The last day WAF was on the air, he called to say goodbye, and he was driving. And the same thing happened with this podcast episode. He was actually driving from Massachusetts to Florida. So when I asked him how long he could talk, he was like, I don't know, how long is it going to take me to get to Florida? We talked about all kinds of stuff. Parenting, music, current events, COVID, the relationship between rock artists and their audience and fans. Some of the crazy things we did when we were younger. I mean, we basically talked about everything. I had him as a captive audience. And you can tell he was driving because he was yelling at people. He may be headed to Florida, but he's still a mass hole at heart. I've known him for almost 25 years. And both of us have seen each other go through a ton, both personally and professionally. And I'm so glad that I finally got him to be on the podcast. So if you're looking for news on Godsmack, you want to know what they've been up to. And by the end of this episode, you'll even hear some very unexpected things. I even learned a thing or two. So allow me to introduce you to Sully Erna from Godsmack. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely... Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stain, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mistress Carrie. Is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Isn't it amazing how, like, solid copper just all of a sudden goes bad? It doesn't make any sense. Because it At worked all. yesterday. Ever. I love I love how we, like, I can see instrument cables because we're always yanking them in and out of guitars so you could pop a wire off the solder weld or something. But I love the, the, the cables just sit there on a stereo or a system like yours and then all of a sudden one day the cable's just bad. Yeah, exactly. Like, bye. I'll come. You can hear me now, right? Yes, ma'am. All right. Awesome. I'm recording you, Sully, so you're on the record. Okay, me too. I'm recording you too. (laughs) You're driving. How are you doing that? I have a cameraman with me named Kamal. I know Kamal. What's he doing? I know you know Kamal. He's coming to Florida with me. I have been trying to get you on the podcast since episode number one. And you call me today and you're like, hey, I'm driving to Florida. Do you want to do the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> it's the most silly thing I've I've had happen in a while. Well, you know, when you're on a 24-hour drive and you have, you know, nothing in your truck except a dog 
and a cameraman and you know a bag of skinny popcorn and some orbit gum then you need things to like occupy your time i've been listening to ozzy's boneyard for the last seven hours <laughs> have you not gotten into podcasts yet well i wouldn't say i'm not into it but i guess no i haven't gotten into it yet I mean, if you're going to make a 24-hour drive, like, there's some there's some good ones that'll keep you occupied. Oh, you mean just to listen to? Yeah. Yeah, like Mistress Carrie's? Uh, yeah, I'm just putting in a shameless plug, yeah. Hello. Hello. So why are you driving to Florida? Let's start with that. Okay, so I was in Florida because I purchased a 50-acre horse ranch. Wait. So let's start there. Wait. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why is you know, it that me, every old... time I talk to you, you're doing something weird? Yeah, it's not weird, but it is kind of weird that I'm an inner city boy from Lawrence, Massachusetts, that now owns a 50-acre horse ranch with a John Deere tractor and two horses. You have horses already? Did they come with the I ranch? Do. Yes. They actually did. The lady who sold me the property decided she was going to go live the tennis boating life. She loved her horses more than anything, so she was super picky about who purchased the property. And she kind of interviewed me and Sarah to be like, well, I love you guys, and you're total animal people. And yes, I would here, or if you weren't good people or good animal people, I was going to ship them back to Alabama where I purchased them from. But we wanted a property like this, obviously, to have horses because I love animals. And uh, yeah, now we've been into it for several months. And I brought the uh, recording studio down there and rebuilt it onto this property because all the guys live there. So that's really what kind of incited this whole thing was, you know, I live, this property is about seven miles from Shannon Larkin's house and about 13 miles from Tony Rombola. So my guys are down there and that's kind of one of the reasons that, um, you know, initiated this whole thought process. Plus, I hate the fucking snow. Yeah, but a 50-acre horse ranch in Florida, that's how much you hate the snow? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, bought, I bought one acre for every 10% of hatred <laughs> that I have for snow. <laughs> Did coronavirus and being stuck at home all that time like help convince you that maybe you needed some more space? Uh, well, you know, it's a long story, but in a nutshell, I was, I've been looking at an alternate home area for a while now. And California was kind of on my radar just because I have a lot of friends there. My business is there. Um, I love the weather. But when all this political shit went down, it really turned me off to just the thought process and ways of being for a lot of the liberals and people that I just, I just can't connect with on that wavelength. So it kind of bummed me out to a point where I'm like, well, I don't really want to go 3,000 miles across the country to pay triple the amount of money to live in that kind of nonsense and be locked down. So yeah, you know, Corona and politics played a piece of my decision to divert to Florida and I honestly just went down there to buy like a property with a little bit of room 
and, you know, a decent little house, and, and I wanted horses, right? And I knew that Shannon was kind of in horse country because it's in, um, like, North Fort Myers. And um, so I, I just came across this really great deal with this lady who had a 20-acre horse ranch, but she also owned the 30-acre pasture next door to it, which is just an open pasture that, you know, some guy leases to pasteurize his cows on, and uh, it gives me, you know, a tax break because it's agricultural, and I get a half a cow a year. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm a meat eater, too. Not only am I not a liberal, I'm a fucking meat eater. Well, I just mean space-wise, like, I was so happy when everything went down that I didn't listen to everyone when they told me, you should just move into the city. Like, I was so glad that I lived in the suburbs when coronavirus hit because I had like space to go outside in my own yard and have a garden and like just to be able to be outside living in a downtown metropolitan area with all those people around, even without coronavirus is not relaxing for me. No, not at all. No, me neither, man. You know, I love New York city for instance, but I love it for about 24 hours. And then I start to chew my fingernails, and by day two, I'm like, okay, time to go. Yeah, it's like Vegas. Like, I can go there for three or four days, and after that, I'm like, i got to get out of here. Exactly. It just never shuts the fuck up for three seconds. (laughs) And I I need to quiet my head, you know? I live in a tornado for what I do for a living. And so when I'm home, I want it to be quiet and peaceful and calm and private. So I like space. You know, and uh, so I decided to do that. But I'm not bailing out of New England yet full time. I'm just feeling it out, you know, and we were ready to be recording and writing a new record anyways because our album cycle was done after the Legends tour. So um, it was just time to kind of like hibernate and isolate and write. As you know, you've been around musicians your whole life. You cannot be in a loud, busy public place when you're trying to create so coronavirus really didn't affect our lifestyle so much as it did other people's because it was time for us to go away and hibernate and write a record anyway so for that reason it, you know that the, the timeline worked out great for us and um even this year now you know we decided we're just going to lay low we're going to write all year we're going to try to do two albums actually and um I'm working on a couple other projects with some people to help them get a record out. And, um, and then we're going to probably gear up for like April of 22. I think next year is going to be a very busy touring year. I hope everybody's been saving uh, their money. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's yep. start back at the beginning. Literally, we just went past the one-year anniversary of AAF signing off the radio. Can you believe it's been a year uh, already? Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Like, it doesn't seem possible that it's been a year already. I know. It goes by so fast. So fast. I just sent my kid off to L.A. with her friend Kat two days ago. And it's her first kind of like real adult road trip on her own without any parents or guardians. And, you know, she's going on 20 soon. And I'm like, holy shit, here we go. Did you hide some kind of tracking software in her cell phone? No. No, I'm not going to be a creep. 
That's not creepy. In this day and age, it's just called parenting. Yeah, it, you know, but at some point, too, you got to kick them out of the nest and let them learn their lessons and make their mistakes. And, uh, you know, you can't keep them under your wing forever. And she's kind of at that transitional point where she's not quite ready to go out on her own full-time yet and have her own place, but she's getting there. And I think in the next couple of years, she'll probably want that. So it's kind of good that, you know, these are little, little testing uh you know, zones that you can you can just kind of test the waters and let them do 10 days here, 10 days there, and just see how they handle it, see how they manage their money and things like that. So that was interesting. But, yeah, it all leads back to just we're all getting really fucking old. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> and, time, and time goes by really fast now. So it doesn't surprise me that a year has blown by since I went off the air. I know you put a lot of your personal life and your upbringing and all of those stories into your book, but when you talk about sending your daughter off on her own with a friend to L.A., does it give you a greater appreciation for the hell that you put your parents through when you were her age? (laughs) Sure does. And And she's an angel compared to me. I was a fucking nightmare. And we didn't have the technology to be able to, like, communicate all the time. Like, you know you could just call her cell phone anytime you want, send her a text. You can follow all her social media things so you know what she's oh, yeah. doing and where she's at. Yeah. Back when you yeah. were her age, none of that stuff existed. You just you just left and your parents just had to sit at home and hope that they didn't get a call from the cops. Hope that you come back. <laughs> yeah, right? I used to get punched in the face and hit with a belt and broke brooms over my head only because she just loved me so much and she was so afraid when I didn't come home and show up, you know, at the age of 14 when you're out on the streets in a super violent city. You know, I can't blame her for wanting to beat the shit out of me. But, uh, yeah, it's true that, you know, there was no leashes back then. There was no way to track your kid. And we were just out, you know, doing crazy shit to begin with. So... I'm sure it wasn't fun for the parents. At least now, you know, you can kind of shoot a text and go, hey, everything okay? And then you get the, yep, okay, good. That's it. Just need that. With the (laughs) eye roll emoji, like, dad, I'm fine. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) A year ago, AAF goes off the air, and, and I believe you were calling us while you were driving on that last day when we had you on the air to say goodbye, too. So it's like... If you're not in the car, I can't find you. Like, it's the only time I can nail <laughs> you down to be able to talk to you. Yeah, I tell I'm sitting still for five minutes. So after after we shut the station down, coronavirus hit in a major way within the next few weeks. And I made the decision to build MCHQ, my studio, and start my company. And I had always known I was going to launch the podcast you decided to dip your toe in the water and get on the other side of the interview, and you started hosting yeah. a show from your house. Yeah. What kind of lessons yeah. did you learn from that experience? Well, that, that you know that was just a part of COVID crazy, right? Yep. So there was that. What, what I learned was, holy shit, it's a lot of fucking work. You know, what started off to be like, hey, let's scratch the itch and just do something to, you know, talk with fans and educate and, you know, kind of bring some visibility to topics and subjects that we're passionate about. Um, and then all of a sudden it became like a job. And I was like journalism and 
you know, I was journaling and, and researching and trying to find content. And now all of a sudden I'm fucking, you know, interviewing Jacoby Shaddix and, and, and Aaron Lewis. And I'm, you know, looking up their history and their child. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like <laughs> all of a sudden now I'm trying to research their life and find content to talk about like I'm, like I'm fucking Conan O'Brien or something. It's called show prep, Sully. Yeah, well, no. <laughs> does it give you a greater uh, appreciation for your purple-haired friend over here now? Yes, it does. But it's fun. Like, I, if I wasn't a musician and didn't love what I did on this end, I could see me wanting to do that more. You know, I enjoyed it, but it just became... What it is is the demand, right? Because once it becomes popular, once, you know, people start listening and and they're counting on you to come on every Tuesday or Thursday or both, then all of a sudden it's like the rest of your week becomes research and homework, and I'm like, oh, no, I, I need some me time. So, But but it was fun while it lasted. I think we did like 20-something episodes, and it was cool, and I had a great time, and I got to connect with some of my musician friends and artists, and, and we did a cool fundraiser and raised you know tens of thousands of dollars and got to auction off some you know, historic Godsmack instruments. And um, it was all fun. I have no regrets. I had a blast doing it. And I may do it again at some point. But I, I just needed to get back to my life and, you know, being a singer and a songwriter. Well, one of the episodes that you did, you asked me to come up and hang out at the house and socially distance. And it was really weird being on the other end of an interview with you. I'm the one usually... And it, it was probably- it was probably the first time you got out of your house ever at that point, right? Pretty much. I, I mean, where the hell yeah. am I going? I got a studio at the house. Why, why do I have to leave for anything? I think you, you might have been the first, one of the first people I saw, too, in person, because it was kind of one of those things. Son of a bitch, I just missed my exit, you motherfucker. I don't even know. Let's see how long it's going to take me to turn around. 4.8 miles. That's 9.6 <laughs> miles just to turn around to get back to where I fucking screwed up. That's horseshit. That's 15 minutes longer now. <laughs> look at, look at, we just, we were, we were on track to get there at 7.40 p.m. And we just made up 20 minutes. And now we're going to just breathe. That whole shit thing is gone. Damn it. I don't care how long you spend in Florida, that New England driving acumen that you just displayed is never leaving your DNA, Sully. Fuck, no, I don't expect it to. I'm 53. Fucking done. It's over. The only reason I somewhat pronounce my R's at this point is because I'm a world traveler. Oh, yeah, you're wicked cultured, kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you blend. <laughs> <laughs> So I come up to the house to do this show and I'm sitting on your couch and you're asking me questions and I'm having this whole experience where I'm like, this feels weird. Cause, yeah. you, Cause you're asking me the questions and I'm sitting there fighting my instinct to not take over the interview. It was very weird to be interviewed by you. Cause I've. Yeah, man, it's, it's muscle memory for you, you know? Yeah. You're a natural. I mean, that's why you became the greatest DJ in New England. Oh, thank you. 
you like that? I just threw that right just in there. Just threw that. Just, you know, flattery will get you everywhere in this world. Just flopped it right in like it was nothing. So we finished that interview, and then you and I are just hanging out talking, and I start telling you about all the things that I'm working on, that I started the video show, Cocktails in the War Room, that I built this studio at the house, that I'm getting ready to launch my podcast, and I'm like, Sully, I need a theme song. I need some music, a guitar riff, something that you're not going to use for anything, something that isn't copyrighted that I could put on my podcast. Do you have anything? And you're like peppering me with questions. What do you need it to sound like? How long does it need to be? What are you going to use it for? Blah, 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 whatever. And I have like, all I could think of is that you're just going to dig through some files in a computer somewhere. And then, like, a week later, you text me, and you're like, here. <laughs> I call it war drums. Use it for whatever you need it to. It's yours. And it's unbelievable. Yeah, I just riffed out. I riffed out. Are you still using it? Still using it. It's my theme song, for fuck's sake. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And you know what I did? I was just riffing around, and I was trying some different guitar parts or whatever. And then I started to find like a hook and then I was like, oh man, it's really close. I was checking the, the beats per minute so I could run a click to it and record it. And, and it was at like 105.2 or something like that. And I'm like, oh my God, all I got to do is nudge this up a little bit and I can make it 107.3. <laughs> so I did that. I did that in your honor. I made the tempo 107.3. It's freaking hilarious. And when I finally announced the podcast and figured out the logos and the artwork and when I was going to release it, I I couldn't wait for everybody to hear it. And I couldn't wait for everybody to hear the intro because you're part of the intro for every episode, too. And the reaction that I got from people that subscribe to the podcast and watch Cocktails in the War Room every Tuesday night on my Facebook page is like, as soon as the music starts, it sounds like you. Like, oh, nice. That it sounds exactly like it should and what they associated with me and my radio show and everything. And so since I started the podcast, and since everyone heard the song War Drums, my theme song, for the first time, everybody's been like, when's Sully coming on the podcast? When's Sully coming on the podcast? Why hasn't Sully come on the podcast yet? Sully's not on the podcast and he wrote your fucking theme song. Why isn't he on the podcast yet? <laughs> and it's because you weren't in the car long enough for us to do the interview. And so we finally yeah. got you. It took 39 episodes, but we finally got you in. Here I am to save the day. <laughs> so what have you... I'm here, man. Finally here. I'm here. I know you're here. I know. Over the last year, it has been very strange for me being self-employed. Like, managing my own schedule that if I don't get up and hustle every day, nothing gets done. Because I'm so used to having a job working for a company where I was like a W-2, like salaried employee. And just over the last year, I've really gotten an appreciation for 
building something, being responsible for something, having to make all the decisions about something, and having to be the one with the vision to figure out where it is that I want to go. And I bring it up because it's given me an appreciation for what all of my musician friends, including you, this is how your life's been for decades now. Yeah, pretty much. It's a very different way of life. And a lot of pressure. It is. Hold on a second. My dog is trying to get in the front seat. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking driving. Driving is an 85-pound pit bull climbing all over me. Okay. All right. We're good? We're good. Okay. You're a good boy. Yeah, you're a good boy. He likes to sit up front sometimes, though. Well, if he's 85 pounds, it's kind of hard to stop him. He's a good boy. What's his name? Ah, Rome. Oh, that's right. I have two. It's Rome and Harley. Rome Rome is like the construction worker that cracks a beer and scratches his nuts. He's like totally man and human. And Harley's kind of like the overweight younger brother that's insecure about his body and a little autistic. <laughs> and, and now thinks he's a fucking horse. Oh, God. You know, because, like, he's in Florida, and um, it took me about 90 seconds to acclimate him to the horses. And, um, but now he just stands out in the middle of the pasture with them, and when they're grazing, he just starts eating grass with them. I'm like, Harley, you're not a fucking horse. Like, <laughs> you got to come in and eat out of your pole. And, you know, so, yeah, no. So answer my question, damn it. About All right, what's the question? Sorry. So I was telling you about all the stuff that I learned over this last year, and you're somebody that there's a lot of pressure for for you to be able to move the Godsmack machine forward. There's there's people that work for the band. There's music to write. There's tours to schedule. It It's given me a new appreciation for that kind of a lifestyle, having had to have built my own kind of mini empire over the last 12 months. Yeah, so what's the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been how you've been living for basically your whole adult life. So do you want to give me some tips on how to manage this kind of stuff? And just keep pushing forward? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, you seem to have built, uh, you know, something quite successful. So I'm open to any and all business advice. Normally, I don't have to ask you the question. Normally, you just offer the advice unsolicited. Well, you know, listen, it's it's a hard thing because, you know, I was raised with very strong ethics because of my mom. She was a single mom, raised me and my sister after... You know, my dad left when I was four years old, and um, and she, you know, worked three jobs and got government assistance, and you know, just did her best to like provide for me and my sister in a very, very, very violent, you know, low, poor, poverty kind of inner city. So, you know, that being said, it just taught me like I was raised to look at this woman who just get up every day, no matter what, rain, shine, snow, and, you know, even walk to work. Like, literally, it's such a cliche term, but I literally watched my mom walk in snowstorms to go cash a government check at times because her car wouldn't start, things like that. So, 
I was just raised with a strong work ethic. And so when I, when I got this thing going, failure wasn't an option. It was just about what do I need to do to connect the next piece? And I got up every day and didn't really think about the big picture. Didn't really think about, um, you know, I don't know, just what's going to happen in two years or uh, selling a million records and all that. I just was like, what do I need to do today? Is it make new flyers for the gig at Axis? Or is it, you know, do I need to sell a few more CDs or reprint T-shirts? Like, it was just a day-to-day thing, and it kind of just snowballed and evolved, but it was all built through my passion for wanting to, you know, do this for a living. I didn't care. I wasn't trying to become super successful. I just wanted to um, play music. That's what made me happy. And so I just got up every day and tried to think of what I could do today again to play music and be a part of a band um, and not, you know, go to work for the man and go to work for some asshole boss that literally had me under Cessna plane, scrubbing the belly of a plane with diesel fuel and a brush. Like, I'm done with that shit. That lasted about, you know, two and a half hours. And then he's like, okay, guys, lunch. And I went to lunch. I never fucking came back. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, that, that's really what drove me was my passion for it. So you have a passion for what you do and what you do every day is you just get up and think about what you can do today to make your next show better and, um, complete it, just be there, be present and, and continue to fight for it. You know, the more you live in it and immerse yourself in it, the more you manifest everything that you want in life. And that really is what gives you pleasure is, you know, hosting and, and journaling and, like, helping people um, share stories with the public because, you know, a lot of those situations and stories help them. And so that's what you love to do, and that's what you're going to do every day. You're not going to go and work for Sunoco and pump gas again, you know? You're going to do this now, and you're going to figure it out, and you're just going to keep, you know trudging along in the trenches and and uh and you'll make it work you know failure just can never be an option um not because you have to be successful but because you love what you do and this is what you're going to do every day you and i come from similar enough backgrounds and with all the traveling that you done you've done because you know you're wicked cultured there is a certain <laughs> business and work ethic gene that is implanted in your head when you grow up from this region of the country when you have family with the lineage that you and I both have as immigrants from Sicily like the the yes. the working 24 hours a day 7 days a week thing is just ingrained in you yeah totally yep the kids today man they're growing up in a whole new generation and it's just almost it's it's frustrating. That's the best word I can use to watch these kids with their sense of um, self-entitlement and their expectations of how they'll be cared for or how easy it's supposed to be because you could just, you know, be a TikTok phenomenon and all of a sudden have you know, millions of dollars in bodyguards. And what I try to at least 
tell my daughter is go for it. Like, you can be whatever you want. I'll support you. You know, the one thing you're going to get is at least some kind of degree in business. Because no matter what company you decide to start and own or be the boss of, you need to know your numbers. And I want you to be the smart, pretty girl, not the dumb, pretty girl that everyone takes advantage of. So I don't care if you want to be an Instagram model or you want to be the head of AT&T. I just want you to be smart and know your numbers so you can look at your own books and do your own accounting or at least double check theirs. Make sure that no one's stealing from you and, um, you know, and surprise everybody in that way. Now, that being said, I also try to help her see that, like, just because the Kylie Jenners and all these people have become very successful through social media and all that, I related a lot to back in the day trying to get a record deal or trying to become an actor, right? So this is a great group of people that have made it, and it's easy for you to be inspired by that and chase that dream, and you should every step of the way. But just understand the reality of it, which is you're in the less than one percentile group, and you, you may get it, you may not get it. There's a bigger chance you won't. So you're going to have to fight twice as hard for it. And But if it doesn't happen, you need somehow to prepare yourself for disappointment. And you just need to know how to work really, really hard to either keep the dream going and hustle and do what you're going to do to make what you're going to make on the side to pay your bills and be realistic um, while you chase it. But you can't just sit back and, you know, borrow money for the rest of your life or live on someone else's couch and, um, you know, just have no sense of uh, discipline in your in your work drive because you're going to fail constantly but those are the people that end up becoming successful the people that understand failure the people that work through it the people that understand disappointment and how it's going to happen over and over again but it's those people that learn how to stand back up again and walk forward another step after they've been beaten down to the knees so many times those people will eventually get their dream. They'll eventually get to whatever their arrival is, right? Whatever their definition of arriving is in their life, they'll get there. They'll have an opportunity. It's just how you treat it once you get there. Because that's a whole nother thing, right? That now you're into like, you know, you have it. So what do you do with it? Do you just pretend that you're the coolest motherfucker on the planet and disrespect everyone and lose it real quick, you know, and go down in vain? Or you know, do you appreciate it and respect it and treat everyone with care, including your career, honor it, and, um, you know, put as much discipline into it to keep it strong and do the right thing. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, branches to the tree. You know, you just have to stay focused and get through the first part, which is determination, no matter what's thrown at you. Well, the stuff you're talking about is literally the stuff that the last year has taught me because I had to live through it. I mean, I had been at AAF for 29 years, and the idea that I got called— I know, right? And the idea that I got called— So you're older than—wait, you're older than 30? Oh, God, love you, Sully. (laughs) But the idea that I was going to get called into the office and told that the station was no longer going to be there, like— I mean, it wasn't firing me for poor performance. It was that, you know, the station's not going to exist anymore. 
But when you're talking about getting knocked down and having to get back up, that's what I've been doing the last year. Exactly. Do you do exactly. you have a do you have a specific time that you remember that you got knocked down and you were like, okay, I have to learn from this? Dude, I quit. How about that? I was done. I bailed. I fucking, I got to a point in my life where I was, okay, so I, as everybody knows who knows anything about me, I started as a musician at the age of three and a half years old, legit taking drum lessons from a Berkeley college graduate that was the only guy that agreed to take me, right? So long story short, I started you know, my dad was a musician and I grew up literally in the basement watching his bands play. So I've been around music my whole life. That's no surprise and no, you know, secret in my life. But as I went through the whole process and I went from band to band to band to band to band, you know, I spent my whole life chasing the dream to the point where I got a record deal and I signed with a band out of Boston called Strip Mind. We were a punk metal band on Sire Reprise Records, which is a brother label of Warner Brothers. And I felt like, fuck, you know, yay, I finally like got there. And I was so proud of it and so psyched and told all my friends. I went on the road and made an album and it was amazing. And the band just was too young and too reckless and too many drugs and alcohol and no sense of business. And we just, it, it self-destructed, you know, I was fired first because I was the new guy and they thought the band was kind of going down because maybe I was the problem. And then soon after that, the guitar player quit because he's seen that the singer was a dick and it was just, a, it was just gone. Right. So at that point I went home defeated and, you know, I found myself looking at my life going, wow, I'm 25 years old. I have no money in the bank. I don't have a car. I don't have a place to live. I'm sleeping on my sister's couch. I'm bumming $5 off friends for a pack of cigarettes and a jar of peanut butter. And I'm a complete loser, failure, and like, this sucks, right? And I'm watching my friends have these nice apartments and a cool car, and I go, I'm done. I quit. I'm done. I cut my hair off. I literally had this girl I was dating chop my ponytail off my head. I shaved my head, and I went and found a job as a bill collector in Lawrence, and that's what I did. You know, but it wasn't until about a year later that I started to get the itch because music was in my blood. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it again and I'm going to try something and I'm just going to work like in a studio and I'm going to write music and I'm going to record demos and just scratch the itch. Maybe play live once in a while, but it was really just an experiment. You know, and I called this kid up named Robbie Merrill, who was a mutual friend of my sister's. And I knew him to be a good bass player, so I told him I wanted to start a band and just no expectations, no kind of strict schedule. Let's just just jam, put some people together, get to a studio, write some music. And um, that's kind of how I was scratching the itch. And then what was supposed to be just an experimental, you know, fun project turned into Godsmack. And, um, but it it wasn't until I kind of let go of, you know, sacrificing everything, including my education, you know, relationships, like you name it, 
said, I, I just, you know, had to, I'm working as hard as I can at it. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But if it's not, at least I can do something for fun. And I think when I just kind of allowed, you know, let's just say the universe to take control is when it all just kind of unfolded, you know, and what was supposed to be a fun project turned into, you know, a demo that ended up going on to sell 5 million copies. So go figure. I asked these questions because one of the biggest problems and things that people are dealing with through COVID is some people are losing their jobs and, and they're trying to reinvent themselves professionally. Obviously, people with pre-existing conditions are scared to death of getting this virus. And then there's the psychological implications and the depression and the overdoses and the mental health crisis from the isolation. And there's a lot of people that got knocked down this last year, myself included, for a variety of reasons. And so I feel like this stuff is important to, to get people to understand that like, just because they're down, they're not out that, that it is possible to come back from this and rebuild yourself better than you were before. Totally, man. We're Americans, but more importantly, we're humans and we know how to survive and we know how to fight because there is no alternative, right? What are you going to do? Wrap a noose around your neck. That's pretty fucking weak. Then what? you know, destroy your family and destroy everybody who cares about you. Better to stand up and just move forward. Like, that's what we do. We're survivors. We've been doing it since the, you know, beginning of time. You know, the caveman didn't just quit because he couldn't catch the fucking rabbit. (laughs) You have to go chase the motherfucker, right? So, that's how it works, man. Keep fighting. You talk about like the the money that you were able to raise over this last year and you know obviously with this last record and and all of the philanthropic stuff that you've been doing it manifested into the Scars Foundation which is which is there to tackle a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Yes. Yep. Yeah, that was a great great thing for us to, you know, kind of create and get into because it really served a it served a great it's serving a great purpose for so many people but it also serves a great purpose for me because I love giving back. I've always been a super generous person or at least considered myself to be and I love giving back and this was the perfect vessel to be able to really dive into all the issues I had growing up. Where was my experience? You know, that's what I always ask myself. I want to give back, but I can't just join, you know, a foundation that supports cancer or AIDS. You know, although I feel for those people and those victims, um, I was never personally affected by it to the point where, you know, I felt I needed to dedicate my life and time to it, right? So I decided to try to find out where my experience was. And as I thought about it, it was really within, you know, that stuff, the trauma of depression and anxiety and drugs and addiction and, um, you know, all that kind of PTSD qualities that, um, that really suck people down into that abyss of depression. And 
that's where I was like, you know what? I have a lifetime of experience with that stuff. I lived it my entire life. So even though I'm not a PhD in it, I feel like I should be because I have more experience than most doctors do in it. They just study it. You know, when you live it, you, you are it. So that's what the Scars Foundation became about. And, and it was just a great opportunity to, you know, to give back, help people, watch people make the transition out of the dark and into the light. And no matter what it is that they're battling, you know, to know that there's people out there that share in those same kind of thoughts and feelings and actions. And sometimes that's all it takes is for somebody to open up, tell their story, and it inspires someone else to kind of, you know, unsilence themselves and tell their stories. And once you get it out of your body, the healing starts. So uh, it's been a real honor to, to, to be, you know, invested in the Scars Foundation and, and helping people everywhere. I had a really interesting conversation last week with the guys from Royal Blood. And they said something that I thought was really profound. They said that music is the ability to turn your pain into art. Yep. And it's something that comes up on the podcast a lot. And I ask this, and I'm really curious about your response to the question. You're someone that has had this life, this really tough, difficult upbringing that you've always been so honest about. Yeah. And, and all of that gets injected into your music. How can it not, right? That you're just taking yeah. all yeah. that experience and everything and putting it in there. And yeah. you you record it and you open your soul and, and there it is. It's like it pops out of your chest and it's this pain baby that's now there. And, and people like me, well, we used to go to the store and buy it, and now we download it or stream it or whatever, but we're consuming it as a product. It's kind of a weird transaction in a way. Yeah. And to be on the receiving end of that pain and anguish and all of that, and then to be put in a position to be able to judge it and decide if it sucks or not, how is that on your end where you've taken your life and your experience and your pain and anxiety and all of that and put it into something and you obviously know that there's so many people that relate to it and love it because the band wouldn't be successful if they didn't. But you're also going to get those people that say, I hate it, it sucks. Like, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed if someone said that about all of my pain and feelings that I turned into this art and then I found out they didn't like it, how do you handle that? Well, wait a minute. Wait, ask the question, ask the last part again. How do I, what? How do you, how do you handle being powerless once you hand over that pain and art to someone else that, and then put them in a position to judge it. And if they love it, that's amazing. And if they hate it, I wouldn't be able to handle it if they hated it. Uh, well, my answer to that is if you're, if you're creating art to, with the expectations of already trying to impress somebody else, you're in it for the wrong reason. For me, I never wanted to create art to impress people. Maybe when I was younger and I was a teenager and I was just a drummer 
in bands and drinking beers and, you know. Trying to get chicks. Yeah, inviting chicks over to the garage to watch you practice, you know, sitting them on a couch and then, you know, that kind of thing. That's one thing, right? But when I discovered my songwriting ability, because you got to remember, I was always just a drummer first. But then when I transitioned from drummer to songwriter, I didn't know how to write a song. And so my first batch of songs was terrible. You know, we were, we were, <laughs> the first signs of Godsmack were, was just horrible written music. Because, you know, we were good musicians, so the instrumentals were great, or at least pretty, you know, pretty damn good. But then I had to put, you know, lyrics and melodies and vocals to these instrumentals. And then all of a sudden, I didn't even know what I was writing about. I mean, I was talking about getting head from some chick in one song and another song's about, you know, driving down the road. And I'm like, what the fuck am I writing about? This sucks. So I wasn't even sure if I could be a songwriter. And for me, what happened was a friend of mine, and you may remember this, Carrie, there was a band a long time ago in the 80s called Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, I remember, remember them? them. Yeah. So the guitar player in that band, one of the guitar players, his name was um, Dave DeLay. He was a friend of ours, and he took his life at the age of 18. He hung himself with a chain in his basement after crying wolf for years. You know, he would always say he was going to do it, argue with his girlfriend to the point where everyone was just like, okay, sure, you got to you know. And then one day he got into a big argument with his girlfriend and went home, and she found him. And uh, I found myself, and it wasn't even that I was like, super tight with the guy but I knew him well enough that it affected me and I found myself sitting on the floor of my girlfriend's bedroom one day and I was writing like journaling and I was writing about how he must have felt for him to actually do the act and how much balls that takes right because everybody talks about it from time to time but to actually do it that takes huge balls, right? And and I was thinking, like, what? I thought I felt pain in my life, and I definitely have intense pain that crippled me at times. But what kind of pain was this dude feeling to actually go through with it? And as I was thinking this whole thing, and I was upset, and I was crying, and I was, like, emotional. I was having, like, a breakdown because I was writing all these words down, putting myself in his body, trying to think of what kind of pain he endured. And it became the first song I ever wrote. It's called Another Day. And to this day, I've never recorded it because it's just a really heavy acoustic song. And, and I don't mean heavy in a heavy metal way. I mean, it's just heavy, dark, and sad. And um, maybe one day I will record it. I don't know. But I just, I just never have. I never got around to doing it. And but what it did was it showed me, because as soon as I wrote these words, and I processed all these feelings, I immediately felt lighter, I felt better. And I went, the light bulb went off. And it was the first time in my life that I went, oh, wow, I get it. I need to take this gift that I have and use it to vent and make it my outlet to kind of you know, eradicate all this trauma and shit that I've been through in my life with my father, with my friends, with my surroundings, my upbringing, like all these things that tortured me and gave me anxiety and depression and addiction and all this stuff. 
it was the first time that I went, oh, okay, I get it. This is what I'm supposed to do. Not only should I, you know, process this stuff, but this is a, a beautiful, to circle back to what you were saying earlier, a beautiful way to take my art and all this dark stuff I went through and turn it into something beautiful, turn it into music, turn it into poetry and turn it into something that may help other people. Right. But I never went at it with expectations of like, who's going to like it? Who is it? This was strictly for me. I needed this. It was my therapist. And it's what got me through that, those times and started to grow and evolve from there. So if I had done that, with the expectations of like, oh, I wonder what the fans will think of this. So I didn't even have fans at the time, right? Or what, what are my friends going to think? Or is this song going to be the song that gets me a record deal or becomes a hit? That, that just, you're in it for the wrong reason. So you need to be able to um, be passionate about your art and about the things you want to create because, again, because you love what you're doing every day, just like with you. Don't worry about the success. Success just happens. And sometimes it comes in the form of a different kind of success. Even if it's not like you are the most famous DJ and podcast host in the country, maybe it provides enough for you to have an amazing family. And they never have to work or you don't have to work. You can, you know, have a great life at home and a house with a white picket fence and a puppy. If that's your definition of arriving, then you're successful. You're rich within your own means, the, the things that you needed for your life to nourish you. That's the definition of success. One of the things that I think differentiates the rock community from a lot of the other fan bases of genres of music is the sharing of that emotion and pain and common experience. And you got interviewed for that documentary that's coming out next week called Long Live Rock, which is all about the rock community and the relationship between the artist and the creator of the music and the fans. Yeah. And the important role that it plays in their life. Over the last year, yep. you haven't been able to keep in touch with the fans the way that you normally would because you haven't been able to play shows. Can you talk about how important the fans are and the live experience and concerts and how important? I know how important it is for me as a fan to go to shows and how much I miss it. Can you talk about what it's like on your end of that experience and how much you miss it? Well, yeah, I mean... I'll tell you, to start, I see it through my daughter's eyes right now. She is a incredible music fanatic. Like she lives, breathes, eats, and sleeps music. She's not a musician. She's not a singer. She just loves her music. Loves it. She can't do homework without having her music on, whether it's you know her Bluetooth radio or her headphones or whatever. She's just always been that way. So even she has been telling me how much she needs to get to a live show soon. She said, you know, even if we have to tough it out one more year while the world straightens itself out, just know I'm hitting you up for concert tickets 22 and you're going to hook me up for every fucking show that comes through Boston. 
because I need live music again, you know? So I can see the desperation through her and through the people in general because I feel it myself, you know? I feel the need to want to get out there and just play live. You know, I did a short run recently with Aaron Lewis, and it was it wasn't quite ripe enough to stay out there. You know, it was new, but you could see the people coming, and even though there was restrictions in a certain way we had to do it, you could just see the gratitude in their face. They were just like, please, yes, I don't care what the fuck you sing. How because was that being that up on release. that How was that being up on that stage? Like at a drive-in. Like we grew up going to the drive-ins to watch movies. What was yeah. it like to be up there with an audience in their cars? Yeah, it was cool. You know, I didn't know if I was going to like it, and I almost didn't do it. I'm like, no, I'm not going to submit to this being the new normal. This is bullshit. We're going to get this world back. We're going to fix things, and we're not, you know, submitting to that. That's not happening. But at the same time, I was like, well, people need this, and I want to be someone who's contributing to helping, and no one had really done it yet. It was still kind of new, you know? I mean, me and Karen were kind of, becoming the the Columbus of live shows again for a second because we were just testing the waters and trying to figure out how to do it. You know, how do we even do this? So, but once I got up there and I just seen how well it was received and, you know, how appreciative the people were to be there um, and hearing live music, it really fed the, the, you know, it fueled the fire. And I wanted to be there more and do it more. But again, it was, you know, then it got into like some areas were great, some areas were a little bit quite sketchy and not quite ready for it because they were just still too freaked out about COVID. So you know we did it as safe and as best we could, and I think it was just as much for us as it was for them. So you know to, to circle back to your question, it's you know it's really important that we correct the way people are thinking and behaving in order for us to be able to get back to the, the normal again, you know, and whatever that normal is. So, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the new normal, what people are saying are going to be the new normal. Fuck that shit. You know, we're humans. We need to interact and we need to make this thing right. But at the same time, it's going to have changed the world forever in certain ways with businesses, with industries, you know, people are going to be leasing big commercial, you know, uh, offices and conference rooms and all that. There's going to be a lot of things that may not be anymore because they know that they can be just as efficient through Zoom meetings and stuff like that. But as far as like the interaction and the intimacy of live entertainment, sports, concerts, you know, events that people need to connect with and feel that energy that can never go away, and we have to make sure of that. You know, one thing people need to remember, Carrie, is I'm sorry, man. There may be some people that may get mad at me about saying this, but COVID is not a global killer. You know, it's doing damage, and it's certainly affecting elderly, and we pray for them, and we're really sympathetic towards that, and that's why we're all wearing masks. That's why we're all doing our job, because there's a lot of us that aren't afraid of COVID. And we know that, like, we're probably going to blow right through it. But we don't want to roll the dice with our loved ones, right? So we're being responsible. But at the same time, the reality is this isn't a global killer. It's going to pass. We're going to get past it. And we need to get back to normal. So we have to influence 
the strong to get out there and start working and start going to school and doing what they need to do so we can create, you know, population immunity. That's what's going to get us through this. And then we'll be able to get back to normal. Well, one of the things I always remind people, and I actually interviewed somebody a few months back on the podcast, I think we're doing a disservice to COVID by keeping a tote board of the dead. Even though we oh, just, yeah. Come we, on. we recently hit a half a million people that died, but I don't think that's the metric we need to be putting all of our focus on. And I bring it up because there are plenty of people that don't get it. There's plenty of people that got it and didn't know they had it. There's plenty of people, obviously, we know that died. But the story that I don't feel is getting enough, enough attention is the people that got it, that it laid them out, and they are living in a world where they don't know what's going to happen next. And I'm not talking about the elderly here. You know, I talked to my friend Paul Mercurio. He's a comedian, and he's in his 50s. And he got COVID seven months ago, and he's still battling the side effects of it. And he's got things yeah. wrong with his body that they can't explain and they can't promise him are ever going to go away. And now they've got athletes in their 20s that have enlarged hearts. And, I mean, they're talking about circulatory problems. I mean, this is, to me, the only thing that's going to get some people to take it seriously because it attacks your circulatory system the way that it does, they're afraid that people that had COVID, even if they didn't succumb to the serious side effects and end up on a ventilator, that six months later have erectile dysfunction because their circulation is off now and they can't get a boner. Like, if, if the threat of never getting a hard-on again isn't enough to get you to wear a mask and be afraid of this thing, I don't know what is, dude. Yeah, no, I don't mean to laugh, but that's kind of funny because, shit, if that was the case, I'll go get the vaccine tomorrow. But, well, that's, that yeah, is but, the yeah. case, though. That's the thing is that yeah, well, I think yeah, but people, don't, don't, on, well, Carrie, people Carrie, aren't dying, Carrie. so I'm not worried about it, you know? Carrie, hold on, though. Hold on, though. Listen, this is where you're going to lose me a little bit because I don't want you to go from journalism to activism. No, I'm okay, not. That's I'm just I... asking the question, and I'm saying that right. I don't feel like just counting the people that are dead is an accurate depiction of how dangerous COVID can be because there are so many people, they still haven't because even been, been able to identify all the side effects that this thing, like like they thought that it was lupus at first because the side effects were so random that they, could, they, they couldn't believe all those things were coming from the same infection. It's like, I don't even think we know everything that this thing is doing yet. That's what scares me about it. Not that I could okay. die from it, but I'm afraid of, like, the unknown weirdness of it. I get it, you know, but I want to I comment on that because I think there's another side to it as well that we have to just consider, right? And I'm not saying to live your life by this, but I'm just saying there's a whole other side to what you are arguing right now as well, which is, A, there's a lot of people out there because there's been a lot of things proven within the media, the news, to who's on what side of what, and whether, you know, some of this was a political agenda to begin with, whether the numbers are accurate enough to be able to base it on those half a million people dead, right? Because you yourself know, you're a journalist, 
there was a lot of people coming forward, a lot of doctors and everything saying, why the fuck are we being asked to put COVID on everything? Why did someone just die of pneumonia and we have to write COVID? Why did someone come in and have a heart attack and we're being told to write COVID? So whether that half a million number is correct, that's the part that I feel like we need to be we need to be responsible enough to try and be optimistic about um, not steering people down one rabbit hole because that's what CNN does on one side and Fox does on the other side, right? So CNN delivers one side of this and Fox takes you down a different rabbit hole. And the, the thing with, with COVID is I myself know at least – at least a dozen, two dozen people maybe that have gotten COVID. And I have a friend of mine that three months later, he's like, I'm still having some issues and it's weird. I'm getting dizzy spells. I'm getting this, that, and the other thing. And what the fuck, right? And then I know another group of people that were like, dude, I've had a hangover that was worse than this. I had a fever of 99 for about a day and a half and haven't had a problem since. And so it affects everybody differently. And that's, that's the big that's mystery. That's what's scaring. That, that's, the, that's what I'm talking about is that exactly. they can't pinpoint what it, like I read this fascinating article. There's a book coming out about it. I wish that I could remember the name of the book, but it was an article about how they think they finally figured out where AIDS came from. Huh. And, and it's, and it goes back to, I believe, Belgian soldiers in World War One, who were separated in winter from their troops and left without supplies, and they were hunting monkeys and eating them to survive. And these scientists think just now in 2021 that they've finally been able to backtrace and research through modern technology and genetics to figure out where AIDS came from and how long has it been? And I feel like, I don't know how long it's going to take, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, that when they figure out what that slot machine is that's in everybody's body that when you get all sevens, you get COVID and die. It's like, what's the combination of things that have to go wrong for you when you get exposed to it for it to kill you, but not the person next to you? Like what you're talking about, like some people get sick, some people don't. Some people get side effects, some people don't. I I feel like it's going to be this explanation that they can figure out, like say 20 years from now. But in the meantime, we're trying to figure out like, how to go to concerts. But this article about where they think they may finally have figured out where AIDS came from, and it goes back to World War One. I was like, oh, my God, yeah. how long do we have to wait to find out what's really going on with COVID? Well, you'll find out when they're ready to release the cure, which they probably had the whole time. Do you know how much money Big Pharma makes in the government through these medications? This, you know, Carrie... Yeah, I don't don't even get me started. I'm gonna just kind of politely bow out of this topic because I right. have a whole different point. <laughs> I have a whole different point of view on this man, and you may not agree with it or even like it because there's a lot for me to do with the government 
and what I think they can create and, you know, for different reasons. And I just think that, you know, as much as we like to be good in this world, there's a lot of bad people out there. And uh, I think, and this is my prediction, we visit this podcast in one year from today. My prediction is watch what happens in the next year. You're going to see a lot of things get exposed. You're going to see a lot of people go down. You're going to see a lot of people disappear that you think are in power and may stick around for a while. My prediction is a lot of this is going to get cleaned up because there are really good people that are also in the government and that are also watching what all the bad people are doing. And I just have a feeling that we're going to see a lot of this shit cleaned up in the next year. As a matter of fact, I think by summertime, you're going to see a huge, huge percentage of COVID gone. So just pause on that. And remember I said that. And let's revisit this conversation. And hopefully in the meantime, you guys can just not get too caught up in it, even though the, the world has, you know, kind of forced you to get caught up in it. I say, buckle down, go back to your lives, be responsible, right? You protect yourself, be safe, but go back to your lives, build your career, build your, you know, financial means and providing for your families and all that. Because it's going to be another year, and uh, I think 22 is going to be a great year for everybody. But, you know, COVID created quite a mess, so it's going to take a minute to clean this thing up. But I am I am 100% convinced that we're going to see this thing go away this year, and I'm very optimistic about that prediction. Well, I'm just already feeling better because... I'm glad that when it comes to to like rollouts of vaccines and all that stuff that like they've prioritized the most vulnerable. Like my mom just got vaccinated and like I it makes me feel so much better just knowing that she's taken care of. Like just that worry because you know, you want to keep the people you love around as long as possible. And yeah. just knowing that that the the most vulnerable and the older people that are really at such a high risk for stuff, like it just took so much weight off my shoulders just knowing that she Good. was okay. And the other thing that I think has come out of COVID for all of the bad and all the uncertainty and, of course, all of the conspiracies and the fear and, like, all of the – it's just the mess that it has created. Don't you feel like the stories of good – and the human stories of communities yeah. banding together and the yeah. charity work and the the birthday parades and like the creative ways that people have been able to reconnect with their community that has yeah. like gotten me through yeah that's totally. that's I, giving me hope yeah i totally agree you know i really think that uh Humans are amazing people, and there's more, way more good than bad out there. So I just think that people got to, you know, continue to fight the good fight, and we're going to overcome this thing. I'm positive of it. This, this is not going to kill the world. This isn't a global ender. It's not going to happen, you know? It's not Dottie the it's asteroid. Not, no, it's not, man. It's, you know, it's a nuisance is what it is. For the most part, you know, out of the how many billions of people are on this planet, 
you know, there's a lot of people that just want to get back to it and, and also help the cause because we, we did not spend, you know, the last thousands of years evolving to this point to just let a virus take us out. You know, we're going to beat it and we're going to get back to life. We're, we already are. Dude, they you know, landed a rover on. We can sit on our couch and watch a rover on Mars on TikTok. Can you believe that? Yeah. Awesome. But, but, you know, it's awesome. But you know, we also got to watch out, too. Who is it that uh, warned us a long time ago to beware? Was it um, um, Stephen Hawkins? I can't remember, but it was one of those guys, super smart guy, and just said, be careful. Technology may be the means to the end for everybody because technology is growing really fast and big tech is becoming super important to most people. And I just say, be careful, man. Dude, I saw Terminator. I know how this story ends. Oh, you know what I mean? It's like, be careful, everybody, because as easy as these things and convenient as they're making it for you, it may not have a great ending in the long run. So don't forget to take a walk with your dog and your family and don't forget to have a conversation at a dinner table. Holy fucking shit, what a concept, right? <laughs> to actually look each other in the face and use your mouth to communicate? That's fucking, like, who does that anymore? You know what? So, you know what? I one have, of the good things that's coming out of this whole thing is that it's driving more and more people to learn how to play instruments at home. Yeah, well, a lot of things, really, you know? I mean, gymnasts and dancers and, like, actors and you know, TikTokers and Instagrammers, like it's really bringing out some creative people. You're, I talked to Mike Mangini a couple months ago and he was talking about Oh how, my God, one of my favorite people on the planet. Right? And he was talking about, and you have the same story, so that's why I'm bringing it up. He was talking about how there's like eight millimeter, like video footage of him when he was like two or three years old playing along with songs on the drums. And you were another oh. one of those kids that showed this proclivity and this ability to be able to play the drums at an extremely early age. Yeah. There's a lot of parents at home right now watching their kids hit pots and pans with spoons right now. What's the difference between that and ending up like you and Mike Mangini and other people that started obviously with the drums, but that you weren't just playing pots and pans. Like, how do you recognize your kid has abilities? Yeah, it's very easy. To, I mean, if you're paying attention, if you're a parent that watches and pays attention to your kids, it's, it's not very hard to, you know, see talent. You know, you just have to be realistic about what talent is because then, you know, some of them are sending these kids to American Idol and they're, <laughs> and you're like, no, no, no. You're going to have to face reality, honey. That's just, no, the kid's not going to be a singer. In skydiving, know? we call that the bowling talk. That if you make a couple <laughs> skydives and you don't, you don't really seem to grasp the severity of the situation, they pull you aside and tell you what an awesome sport bowling is. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, you know, you can you can see it, man. I mean, like my daughter, for instance, she she's chose for whatever reason to not want to play music, although I know she loves it. Um, but I've I've sat her down at a piano when she was younger and I would show her something like an Adele song or something that she liked. 
And I mean, literally within 10 minutes, she had it memorized. And I'm like, fuck, she has the gene, you know, she has the gift and she just doesn't want to explore it and do it. But, you know, if we were in Bulgaria, they would make you play the violin until, uh, you know, your fingers were bleeding. And, you know, so there's a different kind of parenting too, right? There's, a di- there's different disciplines of parenting that uh, sometimes in America isn't acceptable anymore because it's bullying or it's like, uh, you know, abuse. But there's a lot of, you know, kids that grew up back in the day that, you know, you were kind of, you know, you were, that's how they taught you that, you, you know, you had to teach through example and you had to push them and you had to discipline them because every kid wants to fuck off. Every kid wants to just, you know, eat candy and go play outside and be glued to their iPhones and do nothing. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's fun, you know, but you got to kind of pay attention and make sure you do the right thing and push them. And, uh, you know, without it being abusive and, uh, whatever some of these people say it is when you're being too hard on your kid. Shit. If that was the case, you know, I would have never got halfway to where I am now. One of the other people you had on your show last year, I had on the podcast recently as well, is Nuno Betancourt. And I was shocked to hear from him that he can't read or write music, that he does it all by feel. Yeah. With all the instruments that you play, what side of the fence? I'm assuming you're a feel guy more than a yeah. composing music guy. But have you been able to master actually reading and writing actual notes? Or do you just not even bother? No. No, I, I've been self-taught everything. Every instrument I play uh, has been self-taught, except drums. Drums I was taught by a teacher to read music when I was very young. I started at three and a half. I ended up quitting lessons by the time I was about 10, 11, because my instructor at that time, um, I changed a couple of different people, um, but my instructor, seeing that I had the ability to just hear a song and play it easier than him writing it out in sheet music and me reading off a chart and playing it. So he encouraged me to go get some albums that I really love and just play along, strap on the headphones, crank it up and play along. And so from that point on, I self-taught everything else. And that's also when I discovered rock music because my favorite bands at that time were Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and Black Sabbath. And then, you know, I evolved into Rush and, you know, there was um, more, more um, challenges in that kind of advanced music. And so, Neil Peart and John Bonham and people like that really became my drum instructors, Joey Kramer and people like that. So, but everything, you know, after that as well, you know, guitar, harmonica, piano, like all the instruments that I play, I just, I pick it up and I figure it out. I may not be Beethoven, but I use it like a tool in my toolbox to create with and I figure it out. And some of them I've gotten actually kind of really good at just from being, you know, just intrigued and inspired and, and determined to, you know, to learn it. So, and you have friends along the way too. They'll show you a chord here and a chord there. And, you know, you keep like kind of honing in and perfecting your, your art and your skills. So, you know, the more people see how much you love it and the more you ask questions, the more help you'll get. But, and I was never, I was never formally trained to play any instrument. In one year, we lost 
Neil Peart and Eddie Van Halen, who are arguably the greatest at their instrument, the virtuosos that changed the game. Without a doubt. And I think for a lot of younger music fans, I think Eddie Van Halen passing away and hearing the people talk about his influence on the instrument and music at large. I think there were a lot of younger people that like considered like Van Halen to be like old music. Right. And I think a lot of younger people were shocked to hear literally every musician talk about the profound loss of the talent of Eddie Van Halen. Yep. And when you look at someone that is that influential and groundbreaking and all of the other words that can be used to describe Eddie Van Halen, and it leaves that void, is it possible for someone like that to be replaced or reincarnated? Like, where does music go when you lose that greatest generation? You know what I mean? I don't think we'll ever lose it, and it's all cyclical. You know, I, and I was just, I just had this conversation the other day with um, my daughter and her friend Kat, who's this young 20 year old pop singer that I just got a deal with BMG for and have been managing for the last five years. Um, she's young and super talented and she's part of this millennial group, right? But yet her favorite band is Led Zeppelin and she listens to the Eagles and Stevie Nicks and you know, and I'm going like, wow, what an old soul in this girl, right? And now my daughter is listening, you know, to classic rock in my vinyl room. Like, I have this room set up with my reel-to-reels and my, you know, record player. And, and uh, you know, she started going in there just kind of like, because she got like a Post Malone record signed or a Halsey record signed. And, you know, she's looking at the vinyl record like, you know like a confused dog, like, what the fuck is this thing too, you know? And, um, and then she, you know, I, I, I actually taught her how to put a record on a record player and put the needle on the vinyl. Oh my but God. Now yeah. You know, and, but now she's really like kind of into it. And so, but she sits in, in the room sometimes and, and she listens to these classic rock records along with, you know, the music she likes as well. And I, I hear her asking me to put on Fleetwood Mac now and Stephen and different artists. I'm like, and then you see, you know, new artists like, like that, uh, the, that, that girl that Billie just became Eilish? pretty. No, not Billie Eilish. Her. Oh, her. Yeah. The artist called her, right? Yeah. So she's fucking incredible. Like, here's this beautiful black girl that looks like Alicia Keys kind of and gets on a piano and sings her heart out. And then all of a sudden in the midst of the song, when it's heightening, she's like gets up and puts a get electric guitar on and starts ripping this killer bluesy solo. And I'm like, what? So rock, you know, is always there and it's cyclical and it's always going to come back around. And it's been gone for so long in the top 40 world and pop music has been dominating for so long that, I think it's kind of new and cool again for kids to hear electric guitar. So when they're learning about the Eddie Van Halens and the Stevie Ray Vaughns and the Neil Peart's and, 
you know, the John Bonhams and the Janis Joplins and all these amazing artists that have paved the way. Um, I think they feel like they're discovering something new because there's been so many generations that have gone by and this, you know, wasn't around. It kind of fell flat for a while because new music's trended and, and, you know, kind of trumped it. So it's new again. And I love hearing electric guitar come back and that's great for rock music in general. It's great for us. It's great for everyone, right? They get educated and, um, and it keeps rock music alive and we continue to thrive and be able to do what we love to do for a living because um, that's what dictates pop music. You know, people need to remember pop music is short for popular music. It's not a genre. Pop music is just whatever is current on the radio and dominating the charts at that moment. At one point, it was hair metal bands like Motley Crue and Def Leppard. And, you know, before that, it was it was the classic rock uh, bands and um, you know, and then it went into grunge and it was Alice in Chains and Stone Temple Pilots. And that was like, you know, they called it grunge, but it was really the, the music that was dominating radio and all that. So it's cyclical and it's, it's coming back and I can feel rock music is arising it again. Even, even the pop artists are bringing rock into their music again. Yeah, it's weird to see guys like Post Malone being up on stage with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Aussie. and Yeah, and Aussie. <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was surprised on that one too. I'm like, wow, Ozzy and Post Malone. That's pretty rad. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, I have to ask you this question because I think I've figured it out. You and I have been talking this whole time while you're driving to Florida because you bought a horse farm and put a studio in it so you can work on new Godsmack music, but I'm going to call bullshit I think you're driving to Florida and you bought the horse farm and built the studio down there because you're silently stalking Tom Brady and you had to relocate. Am I wrong? Shit. Fuck, man. You're going <laughs> to call me out like that when I all my fans? <laughs> Who told you that? How did you know? How? You know, last, last How? year, or the year, like this last year in the Patriots, um, thank God, by the way, I went to, a, uh, well, I didn't go to a game. If you remember, um, they asked us to do the opening ceremony um, for uh, the, the, the season opener, right? Yeah, and I was so there. I was on the side of the stadium where the PA system went down. Right, right, where the speakers went out. But thank God, I just instinctually like kind of asked Jonathan Kraft, who has really been my contact with the Patriots. I became friends with him a while ago through my manager. And... Um, I was just like, fuck it, you know, I don't really care or want anything for doing this performance, but I'd really love to have, you know, like Brady and Edelman sign me a jersey, and I had a Brady and Edelman shirt, so I brought it with me during sound check. and when Jonathan came down to say hi, I was like, you know, you mind doing me a little favor? And he's like, no problem, I told him, he's like, done. And, you know, I got this amazing signature on Brady's game jersey, and Edelman signed a jersey for me, and it was just real personalized killer. Thank God I did it because it was his last year, and he walked away from the Patriots after that, and I would have never been able to get a signed jersey from him. So, yeah, ever since then, I've been stalking him. <laughs> How weird was it to watch him win a Super Bowl and not be It wasn't a Pats weird jersey? at all. No, and to not have amazing. a Pats jersey on. It wasn't weird to watch it him win. It wasn't so weird to me. Ironically, it was fucking surprisingly very comfortable 
to watch Tampa, I felt like I was watching the Patriots with a different uniform. Right? I mean, it's Brady, it's Gronk, it's Antonio Brown. I'm like, this is this is in Tampa. This is the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> I I thoroughly enjoyed it actually, and I'm glad he got his seventh ring. And uh, you know, hopefully, it's a wake up call for Belichick too, because he got egg on his face big time right now. Earlier in the year, I talked to Will Hunt from Evanescence, who's a Florida guy and been a Florida guy, and we were talking about Tom Brady moving to Tampa Bay, and him and Troy McClawhorn were both just dying laughing because they spent so much time like hating New England and hating Tom Brady, and now I'm like, Oh, you love him now, don't you? And Will was like, he's my boy. I love him. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, how can you not love Tom Brady? And you know what else this did? This solidified everything that people tried to deny about Tom Brady, right? This was like, okay, you know, he's got the best coach or he's on the best team or I love the Pats or I hate the Pats. And then he just took himself single-handedly solo, went down to Tampa Bay, you know, Gronk followed him down. Yeah, that was another great thing. But they had other great receivers there, like Evans and all that. But how about that? Tom Brady on his own, new team. I'll do it with a whole new coach. I'll do it with a whole new team. And boom, ring number seven. So fuck everybody that says that this guy isn't the greatest quarterback of all fucking time. End of story. It is crazy that he's been statistically to the Super Bowl every other year of his career. And that he's 50% had, of his career. Yeah. He's been in the Super and he, Bowl. And that the statistics about the first 10 years of his career and the second 10 years of his career, they're two Hall of Fame careers if you split his life in half. Right. It makes me now, think, how many? How many... How many decades do you have to be in the Super Bowl for people to take you seriously? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's oh, the played. first 10 years wasn't good enough? Let me put in another 10 years. Hasn't like, he played the in the fuck? Super Bowl in three different decades now? Oh, my God. It's ridiculous. How about, what's his face uh, from KC? Um, was, uh, what did he say? He was in what grade? Oh, when, when oh Patrick Brady Mahomes was, was like seven years old. When yeah, Tom Brady won his when... first Super Bowl. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it makes so, that avocado ice cream look like a good idea, right? Uh, yeah, man. I, I was I was psyched for him. I I, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, I must say. I have no guilt about saying that. And and you know what? I don't think there was I bet you there was almost every Patriot fan in in the entire world somehow secretly enjoyed that because not only of Tom Brady, but because of how horrendous the fucking Patriots were. <laughs> we just did it. We were just like, fuck this. I'm going to watch Tom win another Super Bowl. At least there's some kind of sense of normalcy there. Well, the craziest things that I heard was that this was the first year and Tom Brady is the first player to have the number one selling jersey in every state in the United States at the same time. Awesome. And he deserves it, man. Listen, you know what? Not only is the guy amazing, but he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. He's a hard worker. Like, if anybody deserves to be a superstar, you want to pull for people like that to win. You want them to be the rock stars. You want them to be successful. 
right? Who wants to who wants the asshole to win? Nobody. That sucks. And the other thing that was funny is that the ratings for the Super Bowl were higher in New England than they were in Florida. <laughs> well, have you ever been to a Miami Dolphins game when they play the Patriots? Hello. <laughs> Try to find an orange shirt in the whole stadium. It's like all the snowbirds are down there. The poor Dolphins must play in their hometown and be like, this sucks. Everything here is a blue shirt. And now you're going to be down there and be one of them. I'm already there. What are you talking about? I'm going to be. <laughs> well, I don't know where you are on your road trip. I wasn't sure if you were already in Florida. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm coming up on Baltimore, Maryland now. Oh, well, that's what I mean. You're not there yet. You're on the road. Not, no, but I've already purchased a property there, so I'm there. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Okay. And Tampa's only 90 miles from my house, so how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> don't I tell Tom if you if you interview Tom don't tell him I'm near him yeah I know because the restraining order like the ink's not even dry yet <laughs> yeah not even Giselle I'm after it's Tom <laughs> you know what you're not the only guy that has a stocking problem and a man crush on Tom Brady <laughs> Tom Brady wears Superman pajamas <laughs> but I mean it is in in all seriousness because of what you do and how physical your job is when you are out on the road as a touring musician, it's got to be inspiring for you to see someone like Tom Brady that's kind of on the forefront of maintaining physical fitness and health at a level because rock and roll has the ability to give you longevity of career more than any other genre. I mean, look at the stones, like yeah. these bands are out there forever, but you got to be able to deliver. So, I mean, yeah. for, for somebody like you that delivers such a physical, physically demanding show, I mean, are you ending up at the TB12 clinic? Are you abstaining know, man, but from I, strawberries? I, I it comes back to the same thing I just said. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Everybody who knows Tom Brady and follows this guy in any way and does their research on him, love him or hate him, not one person can say that he's not disciplined. This guy has a routine that's obvious. His nutrition, his workout, he never misses. He takes his job very seriously. He takes his lifestyle very seriously. You know, and so do I. So that's why I'm, you know, now 53 years old and still going and feel stronger than I have in my entire career. So I, I don't see me quitting anytime soon. But if I do, I don't think it's I'm hoping, you know, praying that it never be, is because of a health condition, um, but more that I've just completed that chapter of my life. And now there's other things I want to do in my life. You know, Tom Hamilton in an interview said said it the best once. He said, you know, music's something I always wanted to do with my life, but it's not everything I wanted to do with my life. Well, that's kind of how I feel. But just to clarify, in case that's the only segment of the interview anyone hears, one of, <laughs> one of the things you're working on immediately is new Godsmack music, and you're talking about doing a couple records at the same time, so... The band's yep. not going yep. anywhere. Oh, we're we're more aggressive now than ever. We're 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 we are working hard this year in isolating and locking ourselves in a studio 
to not write one record, but to write two records, even if one becomes a, a lot of people, a lot of fans that, you know, we, we always listen to our fans and we, we pay attention. And although we write the kind of music that we love and that we want to write that satisfies us, we still like to hear and try to um, honor the fan base that's stuck by us for the last 26 years. So one of the things they've always asked is, when are you going to do another acoustic record? Like, that was so cool, that one you did. But that acoustic record really was nothing more than our own songs stripped down into acoustic cover versions of them with a couple of originals on it. So this year, what we want to do is create a full-length rock record, but we also want to go back and create a really cool, vibey acoustic album or an EP so we can, you know, launch a couple of records or at least have them in the can. Um, and that's that's our goal. We're, we're going to be in there all year just writing music. And if it's a big, fat rock song, it's going to go in one folder. And if it's kind of a cool piano piece or acoustic track, it's going to go in another folder. And then we're going to record everything and and then pick our favorites and put out, you know, a couple albums worth. So. We, we have no means of slowing down whatsoever right now. Are you bringing anybody in from outside to help you, a producer or other musicians, to come in and jam with you guys to kind of inspire you guys or spark some creativity, give you some outside ideas? Um, not yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if I do at some point. Because uh, the last record, I really enjoyed the process of you know, not only writing by myself, but writing with my band, but then I ventured out too. And I worked with some other writers who are just really great songwriters, like, uh, like Feldman who writes for Blink-182 in five seconds of summer and like a really weird, you know, list of bands that I, you know, that no one would ever make the connection of Godsmack and those kind of artists, right? Great artists, but just a different style of music. Um, you know, or Eric Ron, or even Clint Lowry from Seven Dust. I did some writing with him, um, and I enjoyed the process a lot. And out of that process, I got some great songs. And so, yeah, it does inspire me, and it makes me think outside the box. And you know, like I said, I'm way past the ego side of this business and who writes it and trying to hero everything myself. If I write it, great. You know, I enjoyed it. I wrote Unforgettable. I wrote Under Your Scars. Those are two big songs that became number ones on the last album. But I co-wrote with Bulletproof and When Legends Rise. And I don't, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say that or shy about it. I have no ego when it comes to that. I've always been someone who has endorsed the thought of do what's best for the song. And whoever needs to get credited for that is the person that gets credited for it. But for me, it's just about writing the best music I can write and continuously evolving into the best songwriter I can be. And that that's my goal. You know, I look up to like Elton John is my favorite all time artist for songwriters. Um, and uh, I would like to be able to just have the music live on and be able to evolve into being a timeless songwriter one day. Because that's going to be my legacy. That's the only thing I have on this planet to leave behind and do my small little minuscule part on this planet to help people. Well, that leads me into the last question. I asked the Royal Blood guys this exact question last week, and I thought that the answer was really interesting. So if you could pick one song that you wish you wrote, 
from any artist of any genre or whatever, but one song that you just go, oh, I wish that I wrote that song. What would it be? Ah, man, such a wide open question because there's so many great songs that I love and hit me right in the heart for so many different reasons. And it's so hard to just hone in on one, but I would have to say, oh, God, that's a tough one, Carrie. I know, because it's not just about, like, what it sounds like, but coming from a songwriter's perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is for me. Now, you know, having evolved over all these years into a a much mature songwriter, I, I love a lot of other artists for different reasons. And I listen to the songwriting, the arrangements, the melody choices, the chord choices, the progression. I, I listen to so I listen to music in such a different way sometimes. But it's always about the feeling. And to me, the ultimate feeling is when you know sometimes you have amazing lyrics and the music's okay. Other times you have amazing music and the lyrics are okay. And then there's once in a while where those two meet and create the perfect storm, just the perfect marriage where the lyrical content and the emotion of the music is so perfect for each other and so powerful that it just becomes overwhelming. And um, I don't even know if I can name one song. That's such a shitty question to ask me. (laughs) I think it's a good question. It's a great question, but I hate it because I don't know how to answer it. Because I want to say one song and then I think of, you know, a dozen other songs that are just as equally incredible. Um, but if I had to pick one to say I wish I wrote it, um, it might be uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down by Elton John. Uh, see, I had a feeling it was going to be an Elton John song just because I know how much you love his songwriting. I just Love wasn't. I, I just wasn't sure which one of his songs you were gonna pick. I really, really love his songwriting. I love. He just has an incredible arrangement. His chords are complicated but beautiful. There's so there's so much to his songwriting, and even though he doesn't write the lyrics, and we all know that Bernie Tobin does, but he still has to take those lyrics as they are and apply them to the music he writes and choose the melodies and the phrasing. And to me, that's just insane. Even Billy Joel, I heard an interview say, I've tried to do that. I've tried to take lyrics that people have given me and just write the music and sing them without changing any phrasing, and I can't do it. And for Billy Joel to say that, that's like, he's, you know, a pretty powerful artist in our in our era, you know, and... um not only are they just so well put together, but they're really beautiful. And I just, I don't know what it is, but his, his songwriting and his music really touches me deeper than most. So again, there's so many songs, but if I had to pick one for now, that would be one of them in my top 10 list. Oh, I loved that movie. I mean, even though it was Hollywood and even though it was, you know, whatever, but I was fascinated at, not only 
where Elton John came from as an artist with his upbringing and all of that adversity that he overcame. But I was also fascinated with that relationship with Bernie Taupin, that that two people would not be able to have found the level of success that they found without the other. Oh, yeah. And that Bernie Taupin, for the most part, could walk down the street and no one would know who he was. That's right. But there's yep. no way in hell Elton John's going anywhere without people knowing who he is. That it just... That's right. That combination of the two of them is so amazing. And the fact that they that they never, quote-unquote, broke up. Nope. You know? Never that, broke up. Not only, did, not only didn't break up, they... <laughs> They never been in the same room together when the song was written. Ever. Yeah. Not once. Till this day. And Elton jokes about it on stage. I've seen his farewell tour twice already. And I had the honor of meeting him on New Year's Eve um, with Lady Gaga. She is the godmother to his children. And I met her. We dated briefly. A little brag there. <laughs> Wait, and, what? Um, Dated briefly, yeah, like in two seconds in your own head? No, no. We, it was. You, you went know, on we, a date we, with Lady Gaga? I went on a few dates with Lady Gaga. Shut the fuck up. How did I <laughs> not know this? Because uh, I'm very private, and maybe I shouldn't even have said that right now. Yeah, well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, I dated her briefly. I met her through a mutual friend. She's an amazing person, like blew my mind. Amazing. As far as like, totally not the person I thought she would be, you know, cause her art and the way she presents herself can be really crazy and kooky at times. Right. But trust me when I tell you that girl knows exactly what she's doing. And she's probably one of the smartest businesswomen I've ever met in the industry. And such a sweetheart, such a nice person, and what you know, whatever we we kind of hit it off and dated a little bit, and um, she was going through a lot in her life, and you know, it didn't last long because it just wasn't the right time, and for whatever reason. But I have nothing but respect for her. But right on that time, I met her the night before New Year's Eve, um, and she was doing a gig at the Win in Vegas, one of her jazz. Uh, hometown bands that she had played, you know, she had all these musicians she played with when she was younger and she brought them out and they did like this kind of jazz show at the Wynn. And then um, I met her that night and she invited me to come see Elton John with her at Caesar's Palace. Um, and then to my surprise, I found out that she was godmother to his children. And um, we went backstage. I got to meet him briefly and it was quite the experience, man. But I, I got to see him then and twice on his farewell tour. And um, all three times he talks about Bernie and kind of jokes about like how they've never been in a room together when they wrote a song. But he never, he said, but that's how it works. And he even jokes to say, that's why, that's why our relationship is still going strong because, you know, there was nothing to argue about. I didn't mess with what he did and he didn't mess with what I did. He handed me lyrics I put it up on my piano. I wrote the melodies, sang the songs, arranged it. And, you know, he never got my way. I never got his. So pretty incredible. I'm sorry. I'm still trying to figure out the fact that you fucking dated Lady Gaga. I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't hear anything I said? <laughs> I We're didn't hear a goddamn word, Sully. Uh, <laughs> you're funny. <laughs> 
listen. You're just jealous because you want to date Lady Gaga. Uh, listen, it. there are people that I just believe have musical ability wrapped in the strands of their DNA. People that are so creative and so talented that it is undeniable. And I look at her as being one of those people that just, almost like she's an alien, like it's impossible for her to not create constantly because she she's like this filter that's taking like light beams out of the sky and it comes through her like, she just seems like she can't do anything else whether or not she ever found success in it, like what you were talking about earlier, that that it's just something she has to do and not something she's chasing the success for, but just something that feeds her soul. I mean, she's an undeniable exactly. talent. An undeniable talent. Oh, yeah, talent. she's great. She's great. You know what? At first, when I didn't really know much about um, about Lady Gaga... I wanted to say Stephanie because I, I met her as like a normal person. I met her through a friend, so I was introduced as you know to Stephanie. Like, well, yeah, and that's kind of how she grew up like traditional Italian. So it's not like you guys very, don't have things in common. Exactly, very, very much so, and has a great family. And um, you know, from what I can see, listen, I don't want to you know barge into no, thinking I know her private life so much, but from the experience I had with her, she's a very, very sweet person and. I really, really enjoyed getting to know her. She was incredible. But when I first knew of the name Lady Gaga, you know, to me it was lumped into that whole pop genre and that artificial kind of lip sync to track and all that. But I was very quickly surprised by that's exactly what she is not. She has an incredible voice and she's a really amazing songwriter and her work ethic is like inspiring. She's really, really smart and she knows exactly what she's doing. I promise you that. Like she's the kind of woman you want your daughter to, you know, uh, be mentored to like to be inspired by. Um, she's, she's really, really, really smart. I'm super talented and man, can that girl sing? She really can sing. It blew my mind. The first, before I even met her, the, when I recognized her talent was at the end, if you watch that live concert she did a long time ago called the Monsters Ball, I think it was. Yep. Um, at the end, they show the credits rolling and she's in the dressing room with her background singers and they're just kind of like warming up and singing and they all start harmonizing and then she starts riffing around them and it's just all acapella. I was like, holy shit, this fucking girl can jam. She really can sing well. Like, that's badass. And that, right to me, that in there, totally changed my whole perspective of her as an artist and um, gained all my respect. And she's a great actress, she, we learned as well. Yeah, totally. And she's just a rad person, man. She's killer. She's super cool, man. Really is. Like I, Like I said, I have not one bad word to say about her. She's... An amazing person, and I was, I'm honored to to be able to say that I I know her in my life and became friends with her at one point. Well, anybody that knows you knows that if you have bad words to say about somebody, you're saying them. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I have no filter. <laughs> yep, get myself in trouble way too much. That's why I always have to tell you, I'm recording you, Sully. Yeah. 
Thank you for reminding me. The red dot's <laughs> blinking. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so glad you finally found the time on a cross-country road trip to come on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I haven't had a chance to publicly thank you for being so gracious and just so amazing in one of the lowest parts of my life. I mean, you know very well that losing WAF was like losing like the left, the left half of my heart. I mean, it just... yeah. And so coming out of that sadness and watching, you know, I tell people all the time, it would have been easier for me if I just got fired, but that the thing that I spent 29 years helping to build still existed, you know, but the fact that it's gone is like the the part of the the loss I can't handle. But in that dark time for you to be so gracious and so amazing and go, no, I totally get what you're trying to do. And for you to literally in like a week be like, well, here's your theme song, Carrie. Like, I want to help you in that time. Like, it just, it meant the world. And I know you know that it meant the world to me, but I I, I need you to understand how much it it meant to me that, you know, you were just so willing to to give something like that to me that, you know, really just showed that you believed in what I was going to do moving forward and... You know, we, we, there's a lot of water under that bridge. And the fact that all these years later that we're still, you know, able to talk and laugh and whatever, but the fact that, you know, we're still professionally also, you know, having each other's back too, it just means the world. So thank you. Of course. You're welcome. And, you know, it's my pleasure. We're family, man. We've, we have a lot of history together. We go way back and, you know, this is what we do. This is who we are. We're New Englanders. and if anybody knows anything about that part of the country, we, you know, have a lot of pride in our families and our sports teams and just our friendships, our loyalty is something like I've never seen in any other part of the country, by the way. Maybe New York has that same integrity, right? But they're busier than us, it seems like. So they almost don't have time for it sometimes where I really feel that Boston may be one of the greatest cities in the country just for the reasons of that like the loyalty and the pride of that city is something and i've traveled all over the world i will say there's some other countries out there that have that same integrity you know when you hit certain countries and other parts of the world you know italy bulgaria russia things like that they're they're amazing too in their own ways but when it comes to america i really feel like new england is one of the, if not the most special places in the country. And it cracks me up because so many people from outside of New England just think we're assholes. (laughs) We are assholes. (laughs) I never said we weren't assholes. I just said we're super loyal. (laughs) You can be loyal and an asshole. That's That's... actually what makes us an asshole sometimes because we're too loyal. Yeah, right? Exactly. We're loyal to our faith, our beliefs. You know, and when anybody like tries to stare us differently or we disagree with, we're assholes about it. Well, just because you're going to be spending more time, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, on your horse ranch in Florida. (laughs) Just for the winter so far. I haven't committed full time. I'm just, I am just so sick of the snow. I'm sick of being in a frozen planet. So for now, I'm writing a record. I had to isolate somewhere. 
my band is in Florida, so I can't have them all come to me and stay in the Holiday Inn, right, with COVID and all that shit, because that ain't going to fly with some of them. So I was entertaining the idea of having a warm place anyways, besides New England. So for now, I'm splitting my time, but it made the most sense. So for now, it's just a thought and a place to get some work done. And when this record's over, which will be by the end of the year, and uh, Christmas hits once again, we'll see if I remain and move full time or if I just uh, use it for what it was good for for that moment and then revert back to New England. Can you get good meatballs down there, though? Yeah, in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Although I did find one place three miles from my house down there that has really good fucking pizza. I couldn't believe it. Really? I never find I never find good pizza in other parts of the country. But man, there's one place down there they make a good damn pizza. I was surprised, so at least I have that for now. Well, when you get to the point where you got some music that you're ready for people to hear, now that I am in control of my own destiny and schedule. Yeah. Let me know. Cause I can take this shit on I'm the gonna- road. Not only, not only am I going to come and play it for you, but I'm going to be in your house with you in the war room having cocktails, and we're going to jam this motherfucker on 10. Dude, it's very rare that we have people live in the war room. Mike Shue did it, and normally, it. normally I only have Wednesday my pug because nobody else is around, so she's my unofficial co-host. But, like, I would love (laughs) – she even gets her own camera. She has her own Instagram. I mean – Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to swab my nose get and and then give you the results, and then I'm going to lick your face, and we're going to crank up the song. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I'm going to get you out of, like, COVID crazy. I'm not that COVID crazy. Yeah, you're a little COVID crazy. I'm I'm just being careful. Look, you know damn well all the medical issues I've had in my goddamn life. You know all about my little foot. You know all of that. Oh, your little foot. (laughs) I almost forgot about that. It's like a fucking weird thing from Deadpool 3 or something. (laughs) So I just don't want to go out because of COVID. Like, I've already overcome so much medically that, like, I'm just trying to be careful. Yeah, I hear you. I, I'm not saying not to be careful. I think everybody needs to be yeah. careful because you're right. We don't know who it's going to affect and how, but we just have to trust that it's okay to get back to life. Yeah. And what we're being careful for sometimes isn't so much for ourselves, well, that's, but it's for the well-beings of others. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I'm in my mom's bubble. And yeah. I'm I'm not so much crazy for me. It's just that I'm trying to be careful because not just my mom, but I got, you know, family members that are diabetic and people that that are more susceptible to the real dire circumstances and, and outcomes with COVID that I just, I, I love these people and want them to be around. You know, my mom worked her whole life for these retired years. I want her to enjoy them. Exactly. My dad, my mom, same thing. They're getting up around 80. You know, I don't want to gamble with them. I don't even want to gamble with my daughter, who's young and healthy and in amazing shape. But she's asthmatic, so I don't know how that's going to affect her and her breathing. 
I'm not going to gamble with that, although I feel like they'll be fine. But still, you know, protect themselves, protect each other. And, you know, eventually this thing is going to be gone. I promise you. Remember what I told you earlier? Me and you are going to check back one year from right now, and we're going to see if my predictions came true. Well, we better check back before a year, but I'll keep this podcast at the ready, and we can revisit it when we're celebrating the second anniversary of WA after off the air. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There you go. And we're playing the new single. Well, the, the slogan of the war room is don't look anything weird and wash your damn hands. So I think if we can just follow <laughs> follow that advice, we're good. And the word weird is open funny. to interpretation. Yeah, I don't know. The only thing I, I lick, you know, sometimes just tastes like a nickel or the side of a swing set. <laughs> the side <laughs> of a swing set? You know where I'm going with that, right? Yeah. Sometimes- I, I know it's that little metallic, <laughs> little metallic taste to it there. And I'm like, oh, is that, what is that? Is that a nickel or is that like a swing set? <laughs> that's the first time that's come up on the podcast. <laughs> that, that should be one of your topics. What is it? The, the topic should be this. Don't even say what it is. Just ask a vague question. And the question is, what does it taste like to you? Yeah. That's it. Sully says swing set. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if we were on Family Feud, that would come up with a zero next to it. Like, nobody else is saying swing set but you. Yeah, well, you know, it's just got a metal taste to it sometimes. (laughs) That can be your war room question when you come in with me and sit on the green couch. Yeah, that's it. That's going to be my question. What does it taste like to you? And they're going to be like, well, what, what? And I'm going to be like, exactly what? What yeah, does it taste like? What? What, are, what are you thinking about and what does it taste like? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a good, that's a weird way to get into people's heads real quick, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a perfect- I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another good one. I'll tell you another good one that we can use when I get in there. Ask somebody what the search words are they choose when surfing a porn site. Oh, man. You want to fucking know, you want to know about creepy people real fast? Have you ever That's seen a- those Pornhub analytics that they release about search terms for different states and stuff? Let me tell you, <laughs> the people in Utah search for some weird shit, man. Everybody does. If you ask anybody, what is the keyword you say? Most people don't even answer that question because it will really show your true colors on what kind of underlying creep lives in you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's fucking weird, man. Weird. People say some weird shit. I'm like, okay, I don't want to know you anymore. They're like, well, I don't want to say this out loud, but amputee midget furries. Oh, I've heard it all, dude. Brother, sister, fucking yuck. There we go. I'm like, no, I'm out. Never mind. Sometimes you hit the end of the internet. Oh, yeah. Amputees, burn victims. What? Why? That turned you on. What is the fucking, what's your problem? What happened to you? Did your fucking uncle not hug you good enough? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Our common friend, Jimmy Garrity always says, that guy right there is just two hugs short. If he had just been hugged two <laughs> more times as a kid, it. he would have been fine, but he just was missing True. those two hugs. That's it. 
just needed two more. Just two like more Spencer, hugs. you know? Yeah. He needs to be in the womb just a couple more months. He came <laughs> out just a little premature. Love him to death, but that dude surprises me almost every day. Just two more hugs. Well, I'll let you get back to your drive. Alrighty. Oh, I thought I lost you. I'm like, did you just hang up on me? Come on now. I am here. No, I don't go away. Ever. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you, man. No, love you to death. Thanks for coming on. I love you too. And congratulations on, uh, on the farm. Like I never, are you going to get overalls? Like I want to see pictures of you, like with the farmer jeans on and a straw hat and. Oh, come on. That's, uh, that's, that's ridiculous. (laughs) I, I am, I have a John Deere tractor. I have a John Deere Gator utility vehicle. I have a John Deere zero turn lawnmower. I have two horses, thirty acres full of cows, and a man-made pond with turtles and tilapia fish. A recording studio, a man cave car garage, and. Uh, a shooting range on my property. <laughs> yeah, well, 20 years ago, that would have all sounded ridiculous. So I just think you're a couple steps more to the overalls, man. And the Sully Erna Country album. Yeah! Oh, yeah. That's right. You never know. <laughs> you never know. All but, right. But I will say it's created quite the peace of mind while I'm down there. It's such a beautiful place and it's really peaceful and quiet and I'm going to get some great work done. And that, for that reason alone, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we'll see. We'll see what the end result is. We'll see what this record sounds like when it's done. Yeah. And we'll see how your tomatoes are. You got 50 acres That's and right. a tractor. You got no hey, excuse. Wa- hey, watch your mouth. You got no excuse. My, Watch them out. Don't worry about my tomatoes. Okay. I'm just saying that I expect. They're always ripe and delicious. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I just shut the recorder off. See, I got to tell them when I'm recording them and when I'm not. Huge thanks to Sully Erna from Godsmack for coming on the podcast. It's been several, several months in the making, but totally worth it. You're still thinking about Lady Gaga and the swing set and the tomatoes, right? If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything with the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes every Wednesday. And, of course, Monday through Friday, you get the sit rep. All your headlines in music and entertainment in less than five minutes. And if you don't mind... Give us a five-star review and leave a comment. Huge thanks once again to Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org and mistresscarry.com for sponsoring this week's episode. Check the show notes of this episode for all of the links on Godsmack, Sully Erna, and the Scars Foundation. And there's also a link to this episode's corresponding playlist, which absolutely rocks. And don't forget to join me every Tuesday night live on my Facebook page at 8.30 for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 